grew up in a you know upper middle class family in uh, in Devon in England. My dad, um, he was chief examiner of stock exchange in London at the time. He also he also was a um, head of department at uh, University of Exeter. He sort of pictured himself as being sort of the the archetype of the Superman, I guess. You know, I could always picture him. Uh, you know, with his BMW, his sunglasses on, listening to Dire Straits. He he really did feel himself as being invincible. I never really got, got to see him much. He was always at the office. I mean, all he did was really work. Um, I think that was partly because of the strain of, of, of marriage between my mum and him. They started to lead very separate lives. Basically. He started having an affair with one of his researchers called Mary, and my mum started sort of becoming more and more obsessed with this particular group in Montana called CUT, Church Universal Triumphant. She she was always、um, staying up in her room and reading from her meditation book and her mantras and things of that nature. I was pretty much coming coming into. Coming into my, my own,、um, I was 16 years old.、Um, it was the best of, of best of my times right now.、Um, you know, before that, I was very shy. You know, I remember staying out and making out with a 19-year-old girl, and walking home five miles because I missed, missed the last bus. And I would just remember listening to Duran Duran. <laughs> you know, I think everybody was wrapped up in their own thing. There was no cohesiveness, you know, as a family unit. My mum, in actual fact, she always was very curious about all types of different religions. I mean,、uh, I used to go to church with her.、Um, we used to go to the Catholic church, and then she, she didn't, she stuck. Then she didn't really like that the Catholicism, you know.、Um, then we started going to、um, the, you know, Church of England. And she didn't really like that either. But when she found CUT, she stopped her search. That particular religion made sense to her at that particular time in her life. But then she used to, you know, talk about it all the time. You know, it, it, it became very sort of much, very much encompassed in in whole whole life.、Um, I, I, she was never really available then. I mean, she stopped. She stopped. You know, cooking dinners. You know, we have to fend for ourselves.、Um, she was always in her room. I mean, what can you say? And I thought, well, you know, I want to have some attention too. So maybe I should start paying more attention to this religion, then so she can pay, pay more attention to me. It was began as 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 being,、uh, you know, what are you doing, Mum? You know why are you in your room all the time? I, I'm oh I'm reading, I'm meditating, I'm doing my mantras, you know, and and then he goes, well, what is mantra? How my mum explained that relation to me at that day is that you know Church Universal Triumphant, their headquarters are run Mon- in Montana, and it's run by this woman called Elizabeth Clare Poffit. And I said, well, who is she? And she says, well. She is God. My mum told me that 
She was a prophet that God spoke through her directly. And I said, "Oh, really?" So, well, yeah. I mean, God spoke through Jesus and Muhammad. I mean, that she spoke. She he speaks through her too. Well, I found out that this group、um, they take the best parts of all sorts of different religions,、uh, Christianity, you know, love thy neighbor,、um, Buddhism,、um, reincarnation. Um, Islamic, you know, a lot of a lot of different religions melded, or the or the core beliefs of every different sort of religion melded into one. So it's a very streamlined、um, different religion. Also, how I understood it at that time that, or what was attractive about that religion is that、uh, they believe that we're all part of God in some way. We're sort of aspects of God. Or we do godlike things, and I thought that was found. I found that sort of very fascinating. You know, being being an impressionable, impressionable young lad at the time. You know,、um, I, I really sort of started to believe this. The thing I found the most fascinating、uh, was my, when my mum told me about CET and the concept of karma. Um, there's no good and there's no bad karma. Karma is just bad karma. That's how they would go ahead and explain karma. It's all it's all the negative,、um, uh, ne- negative sort of substance, I guess you would call it,、um, from you know from the past deeds, bad sort of actions,、um, bad things that you did to other people in and either in this life and in other lives. You know, even if you're a little kid,、um, you have bad karma because everybody accumulates bad karma through not not just this lifetime, but other past lives also. And how you get rid of this karma is、uh, mantras and, and prayers.、Uh, like my mum would be there in hours, you know, in days. I'm、um, stuck in her room,、uh, just doing these mantras. I never, I never, you know, through that time period, you know, I, I hardly ever saw my dad. And then it came very public. My dad admitted to my mum one evening that he was having an affair、uh, with his his his、uh, researcher named Mary. And my mum pretty much threw him out of the house, and so he left. Yeah, he got in contact with us, with us for, you know, in a couple of days later, and he took my brother, sister, and I all out for a meal and explained that he was having, you know, he was having this affair, and ultimately that he was telling us that he still loved my mum, but my mum was very closed off from from him now、um, because she was so much into this cult. And I remember actually having a quite a happy time、uh, with my father that moment,、um, even though I called him a bastard,、uh, that he was. But he—I think he, he was happy. He, I think he got what he wanted. He wasn't getting anything at home. He also told us、um, about、uh, Mary's ex-boyfriend at the time, Clive. He was being really.、Um, Obsessive over Mary, and he kept sort of、um, calling Mary and writing to Mary, and so he was he was explaining all this to us, 
and how embarrassing, how embarrassing it was. A couple of days earlier, Clive actually showed up at his workplace and started shouting down on the corridors of the university at my father, saying, you motherfucker, you know, how can you take my woman? It's not your woman. A couple of days later, I saw my father for the last time. Um, he was actually standing in the driveway. Um, I was coming out of the house and I approached him and I was still sort of kind of pissed off at him. Uh, you know, about all this mess with him and this other woman. And he sort of gave me a, a, like a look, which I'll never forget. And he, he said to me something very profound. He said, you know, whatever happens, guy, you know, I still love you, right? And I sort of shook my head, and then I went, and then I went to the bus into into town. And then that night, um, he was he was murdered um, by the ex-boyfriend Clive. He broke into the house, poured petrol all all over the bedroom, um, and all over their bed where they were sleeping naked. And um, and he lit he lit the lit the uh, the flame. You know, he lit the match. By the explosion, he actually, Clive, was propelled out, out of the house. And he survived. Mary died pretty much instantly. Um, my father, um, he was taken to hospital and died, I think, around about um, four or five hours later by first-degree burns. You know, I think how, I think how my mum explained it, um, uh, what, you know, why my, my dad died or got murdered um, was essentially because of his bad karma. You know, before my father um, was, you know, was murdered, um, I, I sort of, you know, I thought there was just a sort of interesting concept that, you know, after when he when he died, um, it really struck me as being sort of one of the truths, because I felt that if he didn't have that karma, um, he wouldn't have died. Asteroids that impact the Earth, lions that can breathe underwater, super speed bears, a robot that actually gets furious with you if you don't show it love, super volcanic eruptions, ratches. These are just some of the things writer Robert Brockway wants to warn us about. 
In his new book, Everything is Going to Kill Everybody, it's not about when the world ends, but how the world ends. Some of the things he writes about, like the asteroid Apophis on track to just squeak by the Earth in 2029, are even official probable ELEs, extinction-level events. But space, he says, is just one of many things out to get us. There's a new theory called the burn shot. And what they think that is, is that uh, pressure builds up beneath a craton, a, a plate of rock. And when it builds up to a certain level, it launches. It launches out like a volcanic eruption. A craton is not a small thing. It, it's not a chunk of rock the size of a, a car, of a, a bus, or a county. It's the size of a country, sometimes even a continent. So it could be the entire United States getting launched into near orbit and coming crashing down on Japan. It's the Earth beating itself to death, basically. Giant explosion and not really much to do, but die as hard as you possibly can. Everything is going to kill everybody is more funny than alarmist. Or maybe it's alarmist ha-ha. You just can't help but cringe and laugh when you learn about some of the awful-sounding things that scientists are building. Things that are not out to destroy the world, but make it a better place. Things like meat-eating robots. They actually have a name for them. They're called gastrobots. And that's, if that's not a name that is meant to inspire terror, I don't know what is. But they, uh, they're robots that have to eat for fuel. And uh, by far the most effective source of fuel is meat. So they're programming all of these robots to go around eating animals or, well, obviously it's going to come to eating people. Okay. Let's say they can program these gastronauts to stick to the bottom of the food chain. But there are also robots being programmed to shoot stuff without human supervision. The ISSG, it's a, it's a guard robot. And what it is, is a robot with complete autonomy to kill. You've seen those predator drones that target people and shoot them down. They have a human behind the trigger. This one does not. Uh, it's totally authorized to take the shot on its own volition. It's on sale on the free market. I think it costs about $200,000. And anybody that wants to can buy one, and they can adjust the programming to any setting. You can adjust it to shoot people whose pants you don't like or hobos that come too close to your guarded villa. You can adjust it to shoot people that don't want to give you hugs. Another thing Robert Brockway believes will kill everybody and everything is nanotech. And while it's easy to imagine how tiny robots that pull things apart to make more tiny robots could turn into a Lilliputian nightmare, are you prepared for nanolitter? What that is is the idea that nanotechnology will kill us all, but it won't be cool little robots that attack you and tear you apart, and it won't be lions and bears that get super abilities. It'll, it'll be basically mesothelioma. And, and by that, I mean nanolitter. It can have any number of effects that are drastically magnified as you shrink them down, like, uh, like silver. Silver has antibacterial properties, very mild antibacterial properties, if you uh, take it in its natural form. Now, if you take nanoparticles of silver, that effect is magnified exponentially. See, because you have nanosilver particles. You have them in your washing machine. If it says it has antibacterial properties, it probably rinses them with silver nanoparticles. If you have uh, odor-fighting socks, silver nanoparticles. We're releasing these things out there right now, and we have no idea what they're going to do. So giant rocks from space or the killer robots, those are, those are the far-fetched ones we can laugh at, but 
You look down at your socks, and that's the thing that's going to kill us all. I started out personally with a 72-hour kit, um, which is just a, a bag that can sustain you for 72 hours, you know, some snacks, uh, some bottled water. Um, I found that to be a good way to kind of transition into preparedness. You get to kind of buy some things, make a few lists, put some stuff together. From there, I, I started focusing on water storage. We cannot survive very long at all without water. Um, I've actually got a three-month supply of water, which is about 90 gallons for, for 90 days. Matt Jarvis is a prepper a new breed of American survivalist. The preppers are not so much about stashing guns in the woods, but more stashing gallons of water in the basement. Preppers believe that today, you're crazy not to prepare for things like natural disasters. And for the prepper movement, the rallying cry is Katrina. Katrina should be a, a really a wake-up call for anyone that, that looks at this disaster, looks at how it was handled, and, and how the, the people of New Orleans were... Uh, were affected, it, it should be a wake-up call for, for anyone to get prepared. But but yeah, you know, the government was totally ineffective, couldn't even get water to the Superdome. I, imagine if everyone in, in uh, New Orleans had nothing more than a 72-hour kit. They would have been so much better off. I, I live here in, in western Kentucky, and uh, two years ago, um, we had a, a major ice storm, uh, one of the biggest ice storms we've had in, in the area in probably 30 or 40 years. Um, biggest one in my lifetime, that's for sure. And we uh, lost power for about a week. Most people were without water. We fortunately did have running water. The it, the pressure got, got pretty low, but we fortunately did have it the whole time. No power, though, for about a week. So that, uh, you know, in itself was, was a huge wake-up call to say, you know, these types of things can happen. You think, oh, you know, it can't happen to me. That, that'll happen somewhere else. But when it does happen, you need to be prepared and, you know, having some food and some water put back, you haven't lost anything. If, if the disaster never comes, if it comes time to, you know, that food's going to expire, you just eat the food and, and then stock some more up. So, you know, this type of things, it's, it's practical um, and, and it's also good for preparedness. Of course, a 72-hour kit won't really help that much if an asteroid slams into the planet or if meat-eating robots invade. But the preppers don't really concern themselves with those kinds of scenarios. In fact, the number one concern for the prepper movement is the economy. I uh, recently graduated college. You know, I'm a fairly young um, American, so it's it was really my concern with the with the direction the economy is going and the general direction our our country is headed. Um, I feel it's it's definitely going things are definitely uh, going to get a lot worse in the future. And most of the so-called preppers that that have joined on to this uh, whole prepper movement. Um, their top concern is the economy. He's a prepper. We're a prepper. Matt Jarvis also hosts the Prepper Podcast. Every week he interviews a prepper from the movement. Some guests do spout more traditional survivalist values like arming yourself and building a rural compound. But most of Matt Jarvis's guests talk about things like food storage and DIY gardening. The show is definitely not fear factor. When you're trying to to convince the uh, you know uh, the masses to to get prepared, it you it, it really almost is self defeating uh, to use the fear strategy. People are motivated by fear, but when you try to talk about big disasters and and government collapse, you know that really will will turn people off. It, it flips a switch in people's minds right off the bat, and they'll turn you off. But I found that if you bring it in a in a you know a professional manner, and especially focus on the natural type disasters that would that would affect that person in their area. That really seems to hit home with a lot of people. Most people can remember uh, in their lifetime or know someone that has been through a serious disaster that, you know, some preparedness items really could have helped them out. 
So for me and, and what I've found has worked the best is, is to kind of come, come from that angle of the natural disasters um, and the economic uh, downturn tread on thin ice, so to speak, just kind of work people into it, you know, slowly uh, build up the idea that, you know, maybe you should put a few canned goods back and then uh, move to a two week supply and a three month and, a, you know, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's important to just kind of work people in, just kind of wean them onto it. The main reason that that preppers in general try to distance themselves from from quote unquote survivalists is is mainly just because of the, of the, de- the demonization of the word uh, by the media, by the government. If you'll remember back in the Clinton administration, there was a lot of demonization of survivalists um, as these, you know, crazy type individuals. And and that's not what being a prepper is about. You know, it's about these, you know, it's about real people, real working Americans that see the need to get prepared and are willing to to take that initiative. You know, it's just regular Americans that are concerned. You know, it's job loss is a real possibility. Natural disasters are a real possibility, like like we said with Katrina, Hurricane Ike, uh, you know, a number of different disasters you can mention. Um, these things are real. They could happen, and they are important to get prepared for. Wouldn't you like to be a prepper, too? I was doing really well until the economy crashed, and then I was laid off from my job, and I was broke and spending way too much time by myself in my apartment. Um, I'd also lost my insurance and I couldn't go see my doctor or my psychiatrist anymore, which, um, which I needed more than ever. Um, I just, I felt like I was losing everything. So, you know, and I used to have cable and, and DVR, but I had to cut down all my expenses. So last spring I went and got myself, uh, that DTV converter box for my television so I could watch like three channels for free, you know, like network news and daytime talk shows. And at least then I could escape my own head, which just kept filling with doubt about myself and if I would ever find another job. So then I noticed that the um, DTV box was turned on a lot. And at first I thought that I was maybe leaving it on and forgetting it, but I had nothing but free time, so I started watching the box, and I realized that this thing was turning itself on, and um, I one night decided that I would take this thing apart, and, you know, at first it just looked like wires and a circuit board, then I noticed something behind the power switch, and it kind of looked like a little lens with a shutter. I, I tried to pry it out, but it shocked me, which, which is weird because I had it unplugged at the time. And then I had a vision. I was surrounded by all my household appliances, like my toaster, my fridge, my computer, my vacuum, and they were all animated. And I had an overwhelming sense that they were pissed off and they were pissed off at me. Then I came to, and my apartment was completely dark now, except from across from where I was laying, I saw my VCR just flashing 12 o'clock. So the next day, I threw away the DTV box. Um, I had destroyed it anyway, and for some reason now, I felt scared of it. Um, I 
I had even less to do with my time now, and uh, I found myself just occasionally staring at the wall, but overall I was relieved that it was gone. Um, but then I started to feel anxious. Uh, I wasn't finding work. I was running out of money. I was just trying to keep it together. Um, to make matters worse, I started having more visions. This one vision I had it was so crazy, I'll never forget it. I came home one night, and before I could turn on the lights, I felt someone watching me. And I managed to flip the lights on and saw this, uh, this certain battery-operated personal item waiting for me. And it was turned on and advancing towards me. And then the toaster swung in just out of the blue on its electrical cord, like Tarzan or something, and smashed the item. And I sank to the floor relieved. Um, the toaster then started moving in and was desperately trying to tell me something. You know, that switch that raises and lowers, the bread was frantically moving, like, like in Morse code. And I knew the message was urgent, but I don't speak toaster. The next day, I got rid of everything. All, all my appliances, my vacuum cleaner, my clock radio, my computer. And I got rid of all my battery-operated objects as well, like my electric toothbrush, my MP3 player, my aforementioned personal item. I just threw it all out. I knew this all had to mean something, but I couldn't look anything up because I got rid of my computer. So I decided to go to the library. And I went to the library on the outskirts of town where you can still look up books by using those old cards. I didn't know where to start with the cards, so I kind of I gave up and I just started walking down the aisles. Um, and this man stepped out from behind a bookcase and he handed me this thick hardcover book and um, he told me this is the book you are looking for. So this book explains how robots take over the world and in enslave humanity. Okay, what is the book called? Stories of Robot Takeover, a science fiction compendium. So it, it's a science fiction book? Not really. I wouldn't say it is, no. No, it's not. Okay, so according to this book, the robots are going to take over by introducing this box that everyone is going to put on their television. And it's going to make television better, and who doesn't want that? But it's also going to reprogram all of your appliances and your wireless appliances, and it's even going to reprogram the electricity. Reading this book, I realize that I am not crazy. I, I am actually one of the first people to figure out that this DTV converter box is the first step to robot domination. Okay. What are you going to do about this? Well, I checked out a second book from the library, and it's called How to Make Fertilizer Bombs and Protect Yourself from the Government.
I have a buddy who works in intelligence, and every couple of weeks we get together over a couple of beers and kind of discuss things that are going on. And he points out that as far as the intelligence community like the CIA and their efforts to share information with folks like the FBI is still really difficult. So there was like some miscues and miscommunication actually when the FBI took down this Huttery group. And this is where he is really, really concerned. So if you're not familiar with the Huttery, they're, they're a right-wing group of basically, they're a religious meth head, militia group, and they had a plan to begin the revolution that was going to take down the United States government by shooting a sheriff and a couple other local officials. And how is that going to take down America? I mean, you, you'd understand it if you were a meth head, religious wingnut. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the bigger picture is actually not funny. Because what my friend is saying is, by the intelligence that they have been able to gather, that there are lots of other groups that, that actually do want to bring the United States government down. So, so you're saying there, there is actual chatter right now, but it's, it's from within our own borders. There is chatter definitely within our own borders. The concern is that the evidence points to, according to him, points to the possibility of a concerted attack on the U.S., and the government, and the infrastructure on April 19th. Why, why April 19th? Well, April 19th is apparently kind of a sacred day in the mythology of the right-wing militia movement types. The one that most, most of them look to is on April 19th, 1993, the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas was stormed. Two years later, Timothy McVeigh attacked the Murrow Federal Building in Oklahoma City on April 19th, citing the attack in Waco as the reason that he felt compelled to take action, in his words, to check the government's power that was getting out of control. But I, I mentioned mythology, and the, the most important April 19th date was April 19th, 1775, which is considered the beginning of the American Revolutionary War. That's where the war began at the Battle of Lexington and Concord. The shot heard around the world was April 19th, 1775. So for most of these teabagger militia types, April 19th is like America's big bang. Well, I think there's one more though. Hold on a second. Let me let me Google this. I'm pretty sure April 19. No. Oh wait, no. 1943 is Bicycle Day. That's when uh, Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman takes LSD for the first time. Well, I'll have to talk to my friend about that, but. From what he tells me, all the chatter seems to point to April 19th as 
the day that something big is going down. I I got to admit I'm I'm pretty scared too. Really? Yeah, because it's not just what he's telling me, but it's stuff that that I'm observing myself. In the weeks that were leading up to the healthcare bill finally passing, there were a lot of protests in Washington, a lot of Tea Party protests. I had to I had to walk through these people for for days and weeks just to get to work. Now, I know it's easy to laugh at these people and their illiterate signs and stupid costumes, but I'm telling you, these people are actually scary. These people really believe that Obama is the antichrist. They believe that he deeply deeply hates America, that he hates democracy, and that hatred runs so deeply that he ran for president in order to destroy the United States from within. And these people I think feel like the only way to save the country themselves is to blow it up. You know, I, I found it. There, what I was thinking of is actually it's it's Hitler's birthday suicide, but it's not. It's not April nineteenth. It's actually April twentieth. <laughs> oh man. After my father died, I think uh, we were all wondering, I think, you know, what to do next. I think my mum felt um, that, you know, this was um, some sort of destiny scenario where um, now that she's free of him, you know, not, not in, a, in a sense that, oh, thank God I'm free of him, but now, you know, we can go ahead and begin our life, you know, our lives, as it were. I, as I remember it, there was a conference in uh, America, I think it was in San Francisco. My mum, in actual fact, um, went to this conference um, for, for CUT, C-U-T, Church Universal Triumphant. It was all kind of uh, very vague at that point in my life. Um, I just remember um, to going to a conference, coming back and announcing that we're all moving to America. Um, she immediately pretty much put the house on the market and Daniel came to help move this, this person, this, uh, this guy called Daniel. And it was, it was interesting because, you know, I had no, we hadn't really, us kids had no idea about who this guy was. He just sort of showed up on the doorstep one day. I didn't know if my mum was... Uh, corresponding with this with this this guy when my father was alive, or you know how how this guy showed up in, in my life. 
I remember the plane ride um, going to, to America. We were sort of halfway interviewed by this this guy. We thought he was an immigration agent because he started asking us all his, you know the, these questions about our business and why are we going to America. And I remember being coached by this guy called Daniel, not to reveal that we we're actually emigrating. And so we landed in Bozeman, Montana. I had all these different types of emotions kind of running through my mind when I first landed in America. You know, the first fact is that, what the hell am I doing here? And some resentment towards my mother because I'm missing, I'm missing already missing all my friends in, in England. But also uh, the relief and the escape that, um, because my father, you know, was murdered, that I, I don't have to see or face people that I know in the street and deal with that shame. So. No, no one knew me in Montana. I could sort of recreate myself. I suddenly became really worried about what I knew and what I didn't know. I mean, I, I felt like I should, you know, read more. I mean, I started picking up books and, and just to escape, I think, so I didn't have to think about my dad. Um, I remember you know, going to the ba to the basement and reading a lot of James Bond books because that's all they had in storage. Um, and we, I remember my brother and I were, you know, sleeping at the in the basement of this house, and my sister was up there, and my mum was, um, you know, with this new guy called Daniel. And um, and that's when you know we st first started hearing about the bomb shelters. The church, you know following all cults you know from from anywhere else you know how i see it now um they always need a sort of a compound or a, a, a shelter you know i mean they used to call their their comp compound camelot you know and uh they had all these etherical names or ethereal names to their their little uh, segments of compounds and you know, Elizabeth Clare Poffitt wanted all each member um, to get a bomb shelter. So each family within the, or each member uh, within the cult had their own particular space or, or haven, I guess. I think it's primarily because she wanted more money for, for herself. I mean, she was very, she, one of her rules of, of, the, of the cult or one of the, uh, is is to pay you know pay a tithe I guess ten percent of your actual income to the actual uh, to the church. So you know with the way of doing that you would, you would go ahead and purchase a bomb shelter to make your tithe. We went up there, uh, my brother, sister, and I, and we had shovels in our hands. And building earth around this bomb shelter, this, this this compound, they all looked very nice. Actually, I was quite surprised that these bomb shelters looked uh, quite reasonable. You know, um, it was not a really a, it was not a hole in the ground, but it was actually a built complex. I mean, they had concrete there, they had steps leading down. Um, they had everything. Everybody, everybody had their own sort of. Um, space and actually I went to see our space in, in I remember going actually down into the uh, uh, 
uh, into the ground in down steps and and looking at our family lot and I remember you know is this really gonna happen is this really something that you know I'm gonna be looking forward to um, being in this bomb shelter I remember all these people being extremely friendly to me when I was shoveling away. Um, everybody was very polite. Everybody was um, uh, felt that they were um, had a goal in mind to build these bomb shelters, and everybody was going to be saved. I never, I never met Elizabeth Clare Poppet. Can you believe it? You know, I, I met some of the uh, of the upper level uh, church members. You know, the way the the, the inner circle. So to speak, but I, I, you know, which I, you know, remember very vaguely. But I never, and also that I, I met some cut kids. You know, um, they were all being homeschooled. They were all super smart, but you know, socially inept. <laughs> I never met um, Elizabeth Clare, and that, that's that's actually still surprising me. You know, it surprises me to this day. And then it was announced that uh, Elizabeth Clare Poppet had a vision uh, that God spoke to, uh, to her and then that the world was actually going to go ahead and end at this particular time um, on this particular day. And then we should all go ahead and grab our possessions and head up, head up to the bomb, bomb shelter. I just remember getting shoved in the car, going up and being greeted by this man, you know, in a, in a green scarf, telling us to walk this way into our bomb shelter. Uh, I remember it being bloody cold down there. Um, everybody was leading a sort of a prayer session. Um, everybody seemed scared. Um, and what was interesting is that you know, people were kind of happy about it also, is that, you know, thank God we're in here rather than being outside. At least we're safe down here. I don't think anybody slept really that well. It was just cold and dark down there. So in the morning, um, I opened my eyes and, uh, and we're still here, you know, there was, there was no end of the world, you know, there was, everything was pretty much back, you know, normal. Um, I mean, by, by that time, um, there was whispers that this was just a practice drill, so no one was surprised that we did see the next morning. Um, I, I got up, I got up and, um, you know, sort of unzipped my sleeping bag, slept in my clothes all night um, because it was bloody cold down there. And, um, you know, we, we started, everybody started to sort of march out of the shelters. There was, there was these pretty huge lines, I remember. You know, everybody was like coming out of this, this, this tunnel. You know, we had this tunnel, this granite tunnel, this tube, this metal tube coming right down on the shelter. And it was packed. Everybody was moving with their sleeping bags and, and whatnot. And I think some people felt relieved. A lot of people 
felt that it was a good experience being down there. Uh, I felt a little bit depressed in actual fact. I felt that um, I wish the world almost did end at that point because I you know I, I sort of lost the meaning of life when my dad died. I think you know, maybe I just wanted to be you know, in, that, in that hole. My mom was there, and she she kind of looked happy, and I, I was I was wondering why she was looking happy, and and she said, "Well, what do you think of that, dear boy?" And I I have no idea. I mean, I mean, I don't know if if I, you know, and I went, "No, that's all right," and and I, I think I gave her a weird sign, you know, I just gave her a weird a weird um, look, and everybody huddled through the tunnel and came up and we saw the blue sky and I remember everybody was just trying to locate their car and bumping around with their keys. I mean I think uh, you know, everybody had to wait five minutes so the car could actually go ahead and warm up so everybody was sitting in their cars and waiting for the, the car to actually warm up so we could go ahead and drive at home. I've never been one for dangling endings for movies or TV shows that sort of leave you hanging that don't tie even any of the plot threads together. And it seems like in physics and in cosmology and in astronomy, um, we have some nice plot threads running and we've sort of figured out how, the, how they play out. And even if we're not around to witness it, it's kind of reassuring to know how it ends. Chris Impey is a professor of astronomy and the author of How It Ends, a book where every chapter is the last chapter. For us, the biosphere, the earth, the sun, the galaxy, and the universe. Some people remember that little poem by Robert Frost, some say the world will end in fire and some in ice. Uh, that dichotomy was, was the conventional wisdom for some decades, that the universe, which is currently expanding, might recollapse into a, a fiery death, a sort of mirror image of what happened in the Big Bang, or it might continue to expand forever, and that would be a cold death. The current information in cosmology points strongly to continuing expansion forever, so we've sort of ruled out the fiery ending. Um, that's nice. We, nobody wants to burn in hell, you know, designed by cosmologists, and so we can take that off the table. And so I delve into the processes that occur in an infinitely expanding universe. Galaxies essentially just die. They run out of fuel, the stars wind down, the lights are going to go out, and that's mostly because there's less uh, gas 
available for forming new stars. So this cycle of star birth and death, which of course has generated all the carbon atoms in our bodies and lots of other fun stuff, will eventually be broken. And the other thing that's happening is that more of the stellar remnants are locking in their material, and those are dark objects. They're white dwarfs, brown dwarfs, neutron stars, black holes. They don't shine, they don't emit energy by fusion, and so what's left is a lot of dark collapsed things and very few new stars. So every galaxy will gradually go dark. Eventually there's a sting in the tail because gravity dissipates matter. And so within solar systems, the planets will gradually shrug off from their stars and be flung off into interstellar space. And within a galaxy, the stars themselves, which are now normally held in nice, nice circular orbits as the sun does around the center of the galaxy, those will gradually be flung off into intergalactic space, a place you don't really want to be. Um, and so star systems themselves and galactic systems will be dissipating uh, in two directions. Most of the stars will be flung into intergalactic space, and then about 10% of them will go into the big beast, the black hole that's at the center of every galaxy. Our black hole is about three million solar masses. It will grow over time as it devours 10% of the stars in the galaxy and become a real monster. So you'll end up with black holes and dissipated, thinly dispersed stars in intergalactic space, all of which are dark because there's no new fuel to make new stars. So these are all processes that take place within an individual galaxy. Meanwhile, the universe itself is subject to the cosmic expansion, and what we think is that the universe is accelerating. This discovery from 1995 has now been confirmed with new data, and it seems to be correct. The cosmic expansion um, that Hubble discovered uh, is, is now modulated by an acceleration term, so the expansion is ever faster with time. And we've seen nothing to suggest that's wrong. And the logic of an accelerating expansion is not only that all the galaxies move away from our view forever, um, but potentially some, some worse scenarios because this ever-accelerating expansion followed to a logical conclusion will rip apart space-time. What astronomers observe is the acceleration. Um, what they infer is behind the acceleration is a an entity called dark energy. Dark energy, that sounds very science fiction-y and almost new agey, and it's, it's a vague term because really we don't know much about it. It's something that works opposite gravity because it, it causes things to push apart rather than come together. Uh, and it seems to dominate the dynamics of the universe. So the universe is really governed now and forever by dark energy. So to understand how the universe behaves under the action of dark energy, you need a theory for the dark energy. And since physicists haven't given us such a theory and they're going wild with speculation, we have different versions of dark energy, different theories of dark energy. One of the theories um, certainly is that the dark energy grows in strength in a sort of exponential way so that it disrupts space-time on the large scales, pulling the universe apart, and that disruption propagates down to the smaller scales. And in that scenario, the universe ends in a catastrophic crescendo, where space-time on the larger scales is ripped apart, then space-time on the scale of perhaps planets and stars is ripped apart, and so the, the planet we're on, for example, would just fly apart. 
And then within a very short time, maybe minutes or hours, it depends on the calculation, which is uncertain, uh, matter itself is ripped apart. So space-time disrupts at the level of individual atoms, which mean the atoms of the universe, all of them, all at once, will just dissipate in this sort of crescendo. The time for this to happen, again, uncertain because the theory is uncertain, but it's only a few billion years, which compared to some of those slow dissipation scenarios I was talking about within a galaxy is, is quite short. Those other scenarios are maybe hundreds of billions or trillions of years. So if the big rip theory is right, and not just the average person, but most astronomers probably hope that it isn't, um, then that catastrophic end will overtake all these other possible endings. This episode of Too Much Information is called It's All Over. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen and Laura Mayer. And it featured G.S., Robert Brockway, Matt Jarvis, Pamela Walt, our D.C. correspondent Chris, and Professor Chris Impey. On the TMI show page, you can find links to both Robert Brockway and Chris Impey's books, and you can also subscribe to the TMI podcast. All that's at wfmu.org.